Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see you all. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. You'll find 2 Samuel towards the front of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under the chair in front of you, and you'll find our reading today on page 266 of the church Bible, page 266. If you're not super familiar with how the Bible works, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers, and so we'll be reading various parts of this chapter together, just be looking for those little numbers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage and uh, pray for the Lord's help on our time together in 2 Samuel 15, and uh, we'll get to work. should be around 45 minutes or so. The big idea this morning is trust the Lord in loss and in rejection, knowing that the riches of God in Christ are yours. Trust the Lord in loss and in rejection, knowing the riches of God in Christ are yours. Second Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he would say, your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us eyes once again to see the beauties of your Son in this Word. Give us ears to hear the truth of your Word. Give us hearts to receive. Lord, I pray that you would remove from us distractions. Enable us to hear, speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit, through your word, for the glory of your Son. In his name we ask, amen. Well, it's been a minute since we were in Samuel, so let's do a quick review. God delivered his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the land which he had promised to give to them. When they were in the land, they forgot the Lord and fell into sin and incurred God's judgment. The Lord then raised up deliverers for His people, people called judges to save them, to lead them. Israel eventually grew tired of judges and they demanded a king, just like the other nations. The prophet Samuel had warned the people about a king, and God gave them one. He was a tall and handsome man named Saul. Saul turned out to be a power-obsessed madman who had disobeyed the Lord and did things his way. God rejected Saul as king in Israel and gave the kingdom to another man, a shepherd named David. But the mad king would not relinquish his throne. He chased David all over the wilderness until eventually Saul gets killed in battle. David becomes the king 
and unites the kingdom, establishes the national capital in Jerusalem, brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, David restores right worship of God in Israel. The Lord makes a promise to King David. Through David's offspring, the Lord would establish an eternal kingdom. And it seems like in the chapters that follow, we're seeing that unfold. We see David winning great victories for God's people. We see David ruling God's people with justice and equity. We see David showing God's grace to the fallen house of Saul. And then we come to chapter 11. And the narrative focuses on David's house in his personal life. Sins which David had neglected in his own life come to the fore. He sexually abuses a woman named Bathsheba and murders her husband in order to cover it up. She gets pregnant, and they lose the baby. There's tragedy in the house of David, and then it gets worse. David's own son, Amnon, first in line to the throne, rapes his sister Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, the person we've just read about, who is second in line to the throne, uses his sister's rape to his political advantage. He lures Amnon to a party and has him killed. Absalom flees Jerusalem, and David is devastated. Devastated by the rape of his daughter, devastated by the death of his son, devastated by the estrangement of his other son, and yet David does nothing. Actually, he has to be coerced to even begin the process of reconciling with Absalom. Eventually, Absalom returns to Jerusalem. He has to force his way, but eventually he gets an audience with his father, the king, and bows down before King David, and David kisses his son. And that's where we left off in chapter 14. Chapter 15 opens with us with, with a scene on Absalom. He's got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. He's like a rapper with an entourage. He's got him a murdered-out chariot made by Bentley with chrome wheels and an in-dash stereo. Everywhere he goes, it's an event. He's parading himself through the city. He's the heir apparent to the throne in Israel. We're told back in chapter 14 that there's no man more handsome than Absalom. There's no man more winsome than Absalom. He's the new Saul. He's everything you want in a man. He's handsome, he's confident, he's charismatic. Even his hair is gorgeous, long and thick and beautiful. This guy cuts it once a year and weighs it as one does. He's also crafty and ambitious. He's won the people's eyes with his looks. But now to win their hearts with his words. Verse 2, we read that Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the gate. All the citizens coming into the town seeking justice from their king would pass through the gate. And what would they see? Beauty, charm, and that hair. And Absalom would ask them, well, where do you come from? Verse 3, see, your, char- your claims are good, <laughs> they're right, but there's no one designated by the king to hear you. <laughs> Shrewd son of a gun. Now, whether Absalom is lying about that or not doesn't matter. Perhaps there was a deficiency in David's leadership. A country the size of Israel 
would have required a whole host of local magistrates to hear and adjudicate on disputes. The fact that citizens are coming to the palace to seek justice may indicate some lapse in the king's leadership. Either way, Absalom is taking advantage of this situation and he's sowing discontent among the people. And notice how he does it. Your claims are right and good. He's not interested in justice for the people. He's after the affection of the people. He wants God's people on his side. And so he creates discontentment in the people with their king. There's no one to hear you. The king doesn't care about where you come from. He lures them in and then sets the hook in verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land. I would give justice. Literally, I would declare in their favor. He put out his hand and he takes hold of hurting people. Consequently, take hold is the same phrase as Amnon, who took hold of Tamar. Absalom took hold of the oppressed in Israel and kissed them. Whether they got to see the king or whether they didn't get to see the king, they would leave Jerusalem with Absalom's promises ringing in their ears. Verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. There are different kinds of stealing than just lifting a candy bar from the grocery store. The Eighth Commandment is do not steal, and Absalom stole the affection of God's people, away from God's King. Cornerstone, an ear untrained by God's Word is susceptible to Absalom's tongue. A churchgoer who rarely meditates on God's love in Christ will be won over by Absalom's kiss. Your claims are good, Your claims are right. Don't listen to that preacher. Don't listen to that friend of yours. You are who you feel yourself to be. Be true to yourself. You need to be happy. Your pastors don't listen anyway. They're unloving. No one understands your matter. I could help you. I would make it right for you. May the Lord give us hearts so enthralled with Jesus, so absolutely convinced of God's goodness, they cannot be stolen away from Him by any man, any woman, any politician, or any emotional appeals. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. 
And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Absalom did this for four years. Four years of sowing discontent in Israel's leadership. And then he asks David to allow him to, go to, to leave Jerusalem, to go to Hebron, under the guise that he had made the Lord a promise. And he goes there not primarily to worship the Lord and fulfill a vow. He goes primarily to stage an insurrection. Hebron was where Absalom was born. It's where David was a crowned the king. It's a place of great significance in Israel. And David tells him, ironically, go in peace. Absalom sends secret messengers throughout the tribes in Israel, and he declares himself as the king. He had stolen the heart of the country, and now it's time to unveil his plan. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, shout out with one voice, Absalom is king. We're told that 200 men accompanied him from Jerusalem, and even though they didn't know what Absalom was about to do, it would appear to David, to Israel, that they were with Absalom. This guy is good. But just a couple more things to do before he takes the throne. First, he sends for Ahithophel. Ahithophel is David's most trusted advisor. This guy is brilliant. The Bible says later that his counsel was like the counsel of God Himself. He's that good. Getting Ahithophel is a genius move on Absalom's part. It would have been a fatal blow to David. But why? It doesn't make sense. That Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor, would defect to Absalom so easily. It would seem out of character. Well, there's bad blood here. Ahithophel is more than just the king's advisor. He's also a father. And Hithophel's son was friends with a man named Uriah, the Hittite. And he liked Uriah so much that Hithophel gave the hand of his daughter, a woman named Bathsheba, to marry him. David stole Bathsheba from her husband and had him killed. That'll drive a wedge. So, probably didn't take a lot of convincing on Absalom's part to get Ahithophel on his side. Like I said, the dude's a political genius. Everything is tilted in Absalom's favor. David had lost the love of his people. David's leadership is in question. And now David's closest advisor has defected against him. Verse 12 says, The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And then David learns of his son's coup. Verse 13, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So what does David do? Think about it. Who, who, who is David? Remember who this guy is. He's the shepherd king. He's, the, he's a warrior. He's a brilliant military strategist. 
He's the anointed one of God. He's the giant slayer, the keeper of the sword of Goliath. And who is Absalom? What with his moisturized hands and primped hair? Has he even seen the field of battle? What should a warrior king do to a a preening insurrectionist? Well, let's find out. Verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. Or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly. Bring down ruin upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. David flees. David went out of the city God brought him into, the anointed one of God fleeing the city of God. And on one hand, David's fleeing makes sense. He didn't know how much support Absalom had. He'd just been told that all the men are with him. And David has a lot to lose. His family is in danger. The city is in danger. He didn't want a civil war. And it's probable that David understood this was the discipline of the Lord. After all, God had promised that the sword would never depart from his house. But on the other hand, David's the rightful king. Absalom's a thief. This is treason. This is insurrection. Something must be done. So David does something. David runs. Takes his servant, his household. He leaves the city. He leaves behind ten concubines to keep the house, which ends up being a terrible decision for many reasons we'll find out later. Let's pick up reading verse 18. And all his servants passed by him. And all the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But it's I answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The people mentioned in verse 18 are probably David's bodyguards. 600 Gittites are refugees from Philistia, Gentiles, who had apparently defected from the Philistines. 
and sworn loyalty to David. David tries to convince them to go back to Philistia, but they're, I mean, they're foreigners. They're, this, is, this is a domestic issue. Besides, David doesn't know what's going to become of him. He might spend the rest of his life wandering around in the wilderness, but it doesn't work. Ittai the Gittite, I love that name. If I ever have a dog, <laughs> Ittai the Gittite won't budge. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. Here we have a Gentile swearing allegiance to an exiled Jewish king. And the language used here is reminiscent. If you guys remember from back in our series in Ruth, the language here is very similar to the Gentile Ruth swearing allegiance to Naomi to her God, and to her people, facing an uncertain future. The word which is translated in the Bible as passed by or passed on is used nine different times in this chapter, which might not mean much to us today, but to an ancient Israelite hearing this for the first time, that word would have stood out. It's the same word used of God's people when they crossed over the Jordan River into the land of promise. Whereas the Lord caused Israel to pass over waters to enter the land, here the Lord's King is passing over waters into exile. Verse 23, we read, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The brook Kidron is mentioned only one time in the New Testament. Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 1, where the Lord Jesus, sort of retracing the steps of David, crosses the same brook Kidron on His way to Gethsemane, after being rejected by His people, being sent into a wilderness of His own, betrayed by His own, where He, like David, would shed tears as the sins of the whole world were laid on His shoulders. Let's pick up reading verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until all the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. When the priests heard the news that David was leaving the wilderness, well, they took up the ark of God, the place of God's dwelling on the earth, and they brought it to their king. The ark of God leaving Jerusalem would have been a powerful symbol. It would have symbolized the presence of God leaving the city and His judgment on that city. Imagine the symbolism as Absalom is coming into town, the ark of God is leaving town. It would have signified that God goes where David goes. And these, these priests, they're, they're just loyal to their king. Where you go, we go. Where you go, God goes. 
but David would have none of it. He probably remembered the last time God's people tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as a rabbit's foot in battle. It didn't work out. But he certainly remembered the last time he took part in an unauthorized moving of the Ark of the Covenant. Caused more harm than good. And he tells him, send it back. This David in chapter 15 acts very differently than the David that we read about in chapter 11. This David is humble. He's repentant. His heart has been softened. And he will not presume upon the Lord, nor will he act in his own self-interest. The way he speaks sounds a little bit like Job from your Bible reading last week. Shall we receive good from the Lord, and shall we not also receive evil? So David tells the priest, carry it back into the city. This matter is in God's hands. If I am in God's grace, I'll be returned. But if not, it's in God's hands. Verse 25, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back. From the outside, it might seem like David is a coward running from his problems. But on the inside, it seems something else is going on. He's not abdicating the throne. He's submitting to the discipline of the Lord. He's penitent. He's humbled himself under the Lord's heavy hand. Here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Again, he sounds like Job from your reading tomorrow. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. David is submitting to the discipline of the Lord. When David had abused Bathsheba and killed her husband, he was promised, as I mentioned earlier, the sword would never depart from his house. And here today, he feels the sting of the blade. He had neglected to care for his daughter. He had neglected to deal with his murderous son. David had sown the wind, and now he reaps the whirlwind. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 6, where the apostle writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever one sows, that will, will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The penalty of David's Adultery and murder. The penalty for David's neglect had been forgiven. You remember back in chapter 12, after Nathan came to David, Nathan said, your sin has been put away from you. There was grace for him. And yet... Consequences of David's sin would be felt the rest of his life. 
By the time this story is over, David will have lost three sons. He'll have a daughter and several wives be raped. There is grace upon grace for any and all sin. And this is because our God is merciful and gracious and abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Still, even forgiven sin carries consequences. And we New Testament Christians, especially, under the cross, need to understand that the consequences are signs of God's love. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. When everything in us wants to escape this discipline rather than endure this discipline, we must force ourselves to cling to the promises of God in that discipline. For the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, He disciplines us for our good, that we might share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. David understood that God's grace was the only safe place. So he said, if I find favor, if I find grace, he'll bring me back. I won't have to do it on my own. I won't have to fight for power. I didn't put myself on the throne. I won't have to fight to stay there. David knew the true danger was not the ambition of his wicked son. True danger was being out of the favor of God. Danger was an obstinate heart, unwilling to submit to God's correction and will. Christians receive the discipline of their heavenly Father as a good thing. She doesn't question the goodness of God when under His discipline. She prays, here I am. Do what seems right to you. He does not lash out. He does not seek revenge. She does not tie herself in knots with worry. He fights that God would be glorified in his life at the expense of his own glory. He follows his exiled king into the wilderness and refuses to act in his own self-interest. Cornerstone, we must see that Christian suffering is custom designed by the artist of heaven to fold and mold jars of clay into vessels of God's glory. It is meant to show that the power belongs to Him and not to us. So long as we run from God's correction, we resist the potter's hand. And we will not be shaped into what God has made us to be. His gentle and yet firm hands are shaping and smoothing and filling in cracks in our lives to make us who He has called us to be. And I promise you, God never rubs you the wrong way.
Although David would not use the ark of God as a rabbit's foot for his own self-interest, that didn't mean the priest wouldn't be useful. And the rest of this chapter is taken up with David's plan to send the priests back to Jerusalem. They'll keep an eye on things back in Jerusalem, and they'll report to him in the wilderness. He climbs the Mount of Olives to pray, weeping as he goes, and another man comes to him, an advisor of his named Hushai, wants to join David's forces in exile. But as with the priest, David has other plans for him. He'll send him into the service in Absalom in order to counter the counsel of Ithophel. And he'll report Absalom's plans to the priests, who will then report it back to David. In verse 37, we read, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. We'll take up the next rest of the story another time. What's the point of all this? David prayed, here I am. Do to me what seems good to you. Can we pray that prayer? I mean, how do we know whether or not we can trust God with a prayer like that? That seems awful risky. When suffering, when, when, when enduring mistreatment, is that what we should pray? When someone steals from you, shouldn't you steal back? When you suffer loss, shouldn't you protest? David knew the only hope for him was to find favor with Almighty God. And that's still true today. Our only hope is that we would find favor with the same Almighty God. The only question is, how does one curry favor with God? He's so far away. How do you know if you are in His favor? How do you know if you, are, if you will find pleasure in His sight? I don't know what David thought when he prayed that prayer. It seems to me the answer to King David would have been rather vague. But for us today... It doesn't have to be vague. Now, the answer for us as to where and how to find favor with God is crystal clear. Twice in the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God the Father declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The only assurance anyone has of being in God's favor is to be in God's Son. And so I must ask, are you in God's Son? Have you turned from living your own way, confessed your sins to Almighty God, and trusted in Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your sins. Because if you have not, you have no assurance of being in God's favor. Friend, don't leave church here today with a question mark like that hanging over your life. Admit your need for a Savior and trust in Jesus Christ and believe. And when you do, God the Father will forgive you of your sins and unite you to His Son where you will find favor with Him forever. 
and then tell someone about it. Before you leave here today, tell someone who looks like a regular around here. These are my friends, and I know that they'd be happy to help you to begin walking in a new life united to Jesus Christ. So is the prayer, here I am, do with me what seems good to you, a safe prayer? Well, on one hand, no, because it may mean years in a wilderness. It may mean years at a dead-end job in order to honor Christ. It may mean suffering debilitating illnesses in order to show that Christ is sufficient. It may mean serving your church in a thankless way in order to show that Jesus is greater and worth it. On the other hand, it's the safest prayer anyone can pray. And we know it's safe because of that right there. Because as a Christian, God did not spare the life of His own Son, but gave Him up for us all in order that He would graciously give us all things. You want proof that God is good? Look at the cross. There you see God's love for hell-deserving sinners like us poured out. We know it's safe. Because Jesus crossed the brook Kidron. Jesus suffered the Father's wrath to secure the Father's pleasure. And His resurrection assures us that God is pleased with His Son. And when you and I turn to Jesus by faith, United to Christ, we are credited with His righteousness and nestled safely in the Father's delight in His Son forever. We can pray David's prayer with him, knowing that whatever difficulty we endure on account of it, it is never a sign of God's disfavor but a sign of God's love. His unceasing love, His unceasing delight in His Son, and His Son's relentless desire to see God glorified in His people who are made holy just like He is holy. We can endure any rejection because we know that we've been fully accepted in God through Jesus Christ. We can endure anything stolen from us, knowing that we have everything secured for us in Christ. We can pour ourselves into thankless work, because we know in Christ we have the Heavenly Father's endless delight. And we can follow Jesus into whatever wilderness knowing that we're safe in Him. We can trust the Lord through loss and rejection because of the riches of God in Jesus Christ for you. God's grace is the only safe place. Let's pray. Father, we are here, Your people, called by Your name, saved by Your Son before the foundation of the world. Before we even had a chance to say, forgive us, Jesus went to the cross for us. 
what grace, what kindness for hell-deserving sinners. Lord, we confess that we have been exposed by this text. We confess that we've been afraid to pray like David did here. Been afraid to give ourselves fully into your hands. Because Lord, I think if I'm honest, we don't trust you. Forgive us. Forgive us for taking matters into our own hands. Rather than running to your loving arms during suffering, we run from it. Please forgive us. And Father, thank you for Jesus, who was rejected so that we can be accepted. Thank you and write this glorious truth upon our hearts. When next time we receive discipline from your hands, will you enable us to suffer well, to trust your hand, though it be heavy. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here we are, Father. Do what seems right to you. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your assurance of pardon this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake He made Him who to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God.